Hi, this is Pastor Josh from First Baptist of Queen. We are looking at Galatians chapter uh, 2 this week in our study through the works of Paul. Uh, if you remember from last time, Paul is defending his right to be called an apostle so that his message of the gospel is not disregarded. Uh, so Galatians chapter 2, starting in verse, uh, verses 1 and 2. Then after 14 years, I went up to Jer- again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. So Paul went to Jerusalem. He mentioned previously in the last chapter, he went to Jerusalem for 15 days and hung out with Peter and uh, James, Jesus's brother, the pastor of the Jerusalem church. Now, he went there not to uh, uh, learn how to speak the gospel, uh, but to spend time with them and quite possibly to learn some things from them that only they could tell him uh, because they had spent time day in and day out with Jesus himself. But this time, 14 years uh, after what he had been talking about, he went to Jerusalem and he took with him two guys, Barnabas and Titus. Barnabas was a believer who was highly thought of among the Jerusalem Christians. He had taken Paul into the Christian meetings in Jerusalem many years before, and and Barnabas had vouched for Paul. This is um, Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 27. Uh, Barnabas was a partner, a, a mentor, a friend of Paul's. But Paul also took with him a guy named Titus. Now, Titus, it really is, he's not mentioned in the book of Acts. He's only mentioned in the letters of Paul. Uh, Titus was a Gentile who, it seems, came to believe in Jesus under Paul's teaching. He became a preacher of the gospel himself uh, in Crete, and he was one of only two people whom Paul referred to as his children in the faith. That was Titus chapter 1, verse 4, uh, the other person being Timothy. And so Paul says here that he went to Jerusalem, not as a result of being summoned by the apostles, but because the Lord had spoken to him, telling him to go to Jerusalem. Now, if you remember from the last chapter, that some of the people who had come into the Galatian church uh, as as an opponent of Paul were saying uh, that Paul was not an apostle. He should not be calling himself an apostle. And because he's not an apostle, they should not listen to his message. Uh, which was salvation through faith alone. These people who had come into the Galatian church were were teaching uh, salvation through faith, yes, but also through obeying the Old Testament law. Uh, And and Paul was saying that is not what Jesus taught at all. So they were saying that uh, Paul was getting his message secondhand from the apostles back in Jerusalem. And because he was doing that, he did not have the authority to call himself an apostle. And because he didn't, his message should not be listened to. And so Paul here, he's defending himself not to uh, uh, justify his title of an apostle. He's defending himself for the sake of the message he's preaching, which is the gospel. And so he says that he went and he spoke privately to some influential people. Uh, And these influential people he mentions later on down in verse 9, that it is Peter, James, and John. Uh, But here he doesn't say that's who it is. These are just people who seem to be influential. Uh, And it might seem that he was setting his teaching before these apostles for approval and verification, but that's not what he's doing at all. Paul wanted the apostles to confirm his teachings, to prevent his opponents from potentially undoing his 14 years of ministry among the Gentiles. 
it would seem that his opponents, including the ones in the Galatian church, have some level of respect for the apostles and the church in Jerusalem, or they at least appear to do so. So Paul preemptively went to the apostles so that they could confirm the gospel that he preached was the same as what they were preaching. So he's not seeking their approval. He's going to preach what the Lord instructs him to preach no matter what, no matter who else's approval he has or doesn't have. You see, for Paul, it's all about pleasing God and proclaiming the gospel uh, in order to please God, no matter who else's approval he has or not. And so he takes Barnabas and he takes Titus, and he gives an example here of the situation with Titus. Verse 3, he says, But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. And so the apostles, Peter, James, and John, did not force Titus to be circumcised. So it it would seem as though Titus, his presence, was offering proof of the gospel being preached that faith alone was necessary for salvation and nothing else. Not the Old Testament law, not circumcision, not what these other guys were teaching uh, who had come in as opponents of Paul. Paul is saying, it's not only I who teach it, but bringing Titus, those apostles did not force him to be circumcised. And so they did not teach that you had to do more than just believe in order to be saved. So Paul's opponents pushing the teaching that certain parts of the Old Testament law were necessary in addition to faith for, uh, to faith for salvation. And so Paul brings Titus as proof that salvation came through faith alone and not through any other means. Paul is seeking to emphasize to his readers that even the great apostles agreed with him in terms of what it takes to be saved. Faith alone and nothing else. Look at verses 4 and 5. Yet, because of the false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So Paul calls these opponents of his, he calls them false brothers. Or, or what that would mean is unbelievers. If they could not accept salvation through faith alone, then according to Paul, they were not Christians at all. These, these false brothers were invited in, in secret, for the purpose of doing damage to the unity of the truth of the gospel present within the church. These people came in among the Christians in order to try to reintroduce the Old Testament laws as a form of earning salvation. Now, salvation cannot be earned under any circumstances by those seeking to receive it. So Paul said that he and his friends did not give in to them even for a second. That, uh, what does it say there? They did not yield in submission even for a moment so that their message may be preserved for those who have potential to hear it. For to compromise anything to this group of people would be to deny the gospel themselves and put in jeopardy everyone who was to believe in the gospel as a result of Paul's preaching. for, For Paul, the gospel was too important to allow fake Christians to try to change it. Verse 6, And from those who seemed influential, What they were makes no difference to me, for God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. So he really emphasizes here, these people seem to be influential. He says that part twice, uh, and then he also says, what they were makes no difference to me. He's uh, not necessarily deriding the apostles, uh, uh, tearing them down. He's emphasizing to the people in the Galatian church who are reading this, uh, the people who hold the apostles as almost chief priests,
priests, similar to the way Jews did, uh, that there is no hierarchy of believers when it comes to God. All people are the same before God. No one has a leg up on anybody else. No one starts off further down the road than anyone else. Everyone starts off the same, a sinner in need of a Savior. So Paul is telling the Galatians that the apostles are not supermen, and he was not for one second intimidated or awed by them. These men who who were deemed by some to be almost infallible did not tell Paul to change anything about his message that he had already been preaching for 14 years. That's why he says they added nothing to me. That means they added nothing to my teaching. So the apostles who seem to have been so revered by his opponents seem to have confirmed everything Paul had been preaching all over the place, including what he had proclaimed to the Galatians. Look at verses uh, 7 through 9. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me. They gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So the apostles, Peter, James, and John, recognized the working of God in the lives of Paul, Peter, and the church at large. God was moving through Paul to take the gospel to the Gentiles and through Peter to take the gospel to the Jews. The same God was working through Peter and Paul. One guy was not better than the other guy. God was just doing a different thing with the same gospel through different people. And then in verse 9, Paul names these seemingly influential leaders, James and Cephas and John, Peter, James, and John. But what is significant here is that John's brother James, who had been one of the original 12 disciples, he'd been dead for some time by this point. So this James is the James who was Jesus' brother, the pastor of the Jerusalem church. He apparently was a a widely regarded uh, Christian leader in the same breath as Peter and John, even though he was not one of the original 12. So Paul writes that these apostles saw the hand of God in his own work and confirmed God's calling on their lives to continue to take the gospel to the Gentiles that they had already been preaching for the last 14 years. But they did make one request in verse 10. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Now, this was not a teaching to be added to their message, but but simply a reminder from from some fellow believers. Basically, don't forget to help the poor. And Paul says that he, was already had, he already had this on his to-do list. He had been helping the poor, and he was already in the middle of working to help those who were in need. He had brought money to help the Jerusalem Christians uh, who were down and out in Acts chapter 11. And he would later instruct the church in Corinth to continually take up an offering for the less fortunate Christians in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. So this was a, a continual part of his ministry. And what Peter, James, and John are doing in reminding him of this. Okay, Paul, you've been good. You've done this. Just keep doing it. Don't stop helping uh, the poor. Verse 11. He says, But when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. So, (laughs) 
to, to specify his independence from the apostles, Paul tells this story, this unique occasion when he and Peter were at odds over some specific issues related to the power of the gospel. And Paul didn't back away even from the great Peter, leader of the church. Paul went straight up to him and told him how wrong he was because he says he stands condemned. His actions being seemingly open in public already condemned him. There was no other explanation for what he did other than he was doing something wrong, something sinful. Uh, Paul clarifies, verse 12. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. So Peter had been in among the Gentiles. He'd been eating with the Gentiles. He'd been hanging out with the Gentiles in order to share the gospel with the Gentiles. But when some other guys came from Jerusalem, he was scared of how those people would think about him. He was fearful of of what they might do, what they might say about him. And so Peter withdrew from the Gentiles, not only being around them, but telling them about the true gospel. And this was the very thing Paul had originally gone to Jerusalem about back in, he mentioned in Galatians chapter 1, to talk to Peter and James. Uh, And they had confirmed and affirmed Paul's ministry, taking the message of the gospel to all people, faith or salvation through faith alone. And now Peter is, through his actions, communicating a different gospel. You see, because withdrawing from the Jews, it was uh, an unclean act for the Gentiles to eat with the Jews and to eat what, or for the Jews to eat with the Gentiles and to eat what they were eating. So Peter reacted. To what some people might think of him, how he was exercising his freedom in Christ. He had been freely eating and fellowshipping with the Gentiles until certain Jews show up when he acted out of fear and he stopped being around those Gentiles. He was afraid of what some people might do and say about him because he was doing things that might offend them, even though it was a fulfillment of the gospel for the potential spread of the gospel to the people he was fellowshipping with. And this got so pervasive that even Barnabas, Paul's partner, he'd been Paul's partner for years and years. He was being led away from their primary mission because of the actions of Peter. Paul could not stand idly by and allow the gospel to be maligned by those who should be protecting and proclaiming it in perfect truth at every opportunity. So he went straight to the source and confronted Peter about this misstep. Verse 14. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So not only did Paul confront Peter, he did it in front of everybody. The truth of the gospel is that anyone can receive salvation through faith without having to keep specific laws first. So Paul tells Peter, if you, a Jew, go around living like a Gentile, how can you try to make Gentiles live like Jews? Paul was pointing out the glaring hypocrisy in these actions. Conforming to the desires of those people who wanted to make believing Gentiles follow the Jewish laws while 
personally ignoring the law of the Jews yourself was at best hypocrisy. And at worst, it was straight leading people away from the gospel. And so Paul would not stand that. The only thing that Paul would would, would get so impassioned about and so uh, up in somebody's face about is the truth of the gospel. And so he says this in verse 15, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Now this statement, this was a common belief among many Jews that their birthright guaranteed them salvation and that Gentiles would receive the just punishment of a sinner. Now Paul's not affirming this belief. Rather, he's using it as an illustration of his point that he goes on to state in the next verse, verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. No one can be made right before God by fulfilling, by doing the law. See, the works of the Jewish law serve to do nothing in regards to bringing a person closer to salvation. Because salvation can only be received through faith in the grace of God, granted because of Jesus' death and resurrection. Paul makes a powerful pronouncement here that aligns with everything he has written so far, but here it is solidified and emphasized. He says that doing the works of the law do nothing for the individual in the eyes of God. A sinner deserving eternal punishment who does the works of the law is still a sinner deserving eternal punishment. Paul is not willing to compromise the message of the gospel, no matter with whom that puts him at odds with, even Peter and Barnabas. Paul is here on this earth to please God through the spreading of the gospel. And he cannot please God if he compromises the message of the gospel based on the opinions of other people and out of fear for what someone else might think. And so he writes in verse 17, But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. You see, this is a tactic that Paul will use several times throughout his writings. He will state a point that his opponents have or inevitably will raise. And then Paul will present a counterpoint to that. He takes this argument that some of his opponents uh, have said or will potentially say, if the, fa- if the faith in Christ alone does away with the law that promotes righteous living, then faith in Christ alone must promote sinful living. And he says unequivocally that in no way is faith in Christ promoting a sinful lifestyle. Verse 18, For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. He says, so basically, if a Christian, a follower of Christ, were to return to the law, he would only prove himself to be a sinner. Though Paul is using the first person here, if I were to rebuild what I tore down, I would prove myself to be a transgressor. Uh, He's clearly meaning Peter because that's who he's been talking about. So a Christian returning to the law proves himself to be a sinner. Peter is doing that. He's introducing this concept he's going to expound upon later in his writings that the law is good in that it points out our personal sinfulness and our need for a savior. Verse 19, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. So even though the law is good because it points out that we need a savior, Paul says that he died to the law. 
Because to die to something means to break off the relationship with that something or someone. So Paul is saying that for the sake of salvation and living to God, he had to die to the law or break off his relationship with the law. Because that former relationship to the law was in truth unhealthy. It it taught that pursuit of the law could achieve salvation and that did him great damage and did those that he taught great damage. And so he had to break off his relationship to the law. You see, so much effort had been applied uh, by Paul to attempt to gain salvation through the work of his own hands that he had to die to the law so that it was no longer applicable to him. And then he gives this illustration of that point in this famous verse, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He says, I have been crucified. This, it's in the perfect tense there. That implies a past action with effects continuing on into the present. So Christ's death and resurrection was, was for Paul a, a complete breaking of his old way of life and old way of thinking. He's not futilely attempting to gain his salvation anymore, which that was the law living through him. He is now living through faith in Jesus. So that his life is now directed by Jesus and no longer the law, which he mentions in Romans chapter 7, a dead person is no longer bound to keep the laws of the living. If you're dead, you don't have to keep the laws of living people anymore because the law doesn't apply to you. You're dead. And so Paul says, I have died to the law. It's no longer applicable to me. It showed me a savior. I found the savior and now I'm living in the savior having died to the law. Verse 21. And this is the haymaker punch. This is the, the, the most condemning thing he says about what Peter had done and what Barnabas had done following after Peter's example. He says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. To insist on salvation through more than faith, is to remove the power of God's grace. It's as though God's grace were not enough, which the heavy implication here is that this is exactly what Peter and his cohorts were doing. Doing such a thing has far-reaching implications that, to the point that they undoubtedly had not thought that all the way through when they did what they did. So setting aside the grace of God removes all the power of Christ's death, which in turn would mean that salvation cannot be received. For Paul, everything hinged on the gospel. He was willing to go to the mat for one thing, the gospel, not the peripheral issues. Nothing else was going to to get him upset except the communication of the gospel. No minor issues. Uh, uh, no uh, governmental structure, uh, no politics, no color of the carpet, no uh, type of pews or chairs, no type of music, no type of dress on the platform, no uh, hats in the sanctuary. Nothing was going to raise his uh, uh, blood pressure. Nothing he was going to uh, go after except this one thing. If anyone would try to change the gospel, he was going to stop that. He was, all that other stuff didn't matter to him. 
What mattered to him was the communication of the gospel. He would defend the truth of the gospel for everyone through faith alone with every ounce of breath that he could muster. He would not waste his impassioned energy on anything less than the truth of the gospel. Nothing else was worth the limited energy and time that we have in this temporary place. For Paul, as it should be with us, it is all about the gospel. And he's going to continue on with this discussion almost like he's ramping up in the next chapter that we're going to look at next week, Galatians chapter 3. So make sure you, you check this out next week. Uh, subscribe to this, share uh, this podcast so that you uh, will, will make sure you get it uh, when the next one drops in a week and you can share it with those who you think might benefit from Galatians chapter 2. So thanks for checking this out and I will catch you in the next one.